May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So the theme for this Sunday is joy, and that's why we lit the candle, because that's the candle of joy. Uh, which is a nice theme, isn't it? Christmas is all about joy. But as our Christian World Service video and as our uh, priest prayer, peace prayer reminds us, uh, for many people, Christmas is not a time of joy. Uh, for all sorts of reasons. War, violence, natural disasters, many exacerbated by climate change, disease and ill health, separation from families, and grief. And we remember those in our parish for whom this Christmas will be the first time without a loved one working through those kind of issues. So as we remember the theme of joy, let us also remember those who are struggling this Christmas here in this community and around the world. The Mary's song is uh, one of the two options we had today for our psalm. So um, Charmaine just went with Char um, Psalm 146. Uh, but we have traditionally gone with Mary's song because I think it's a great psalm. Uh, but it's also, as I've said, a disturbing psalm if we take it seriously. And so one of the more interesting experiences I had recently was being at Dyewood's installation as Dean of Waipu Cathedral in Napier. And we sang, chanted the Mary's song. And there are all these well-dressed clerics, um, some of them with their little dicky hats on because they're very high church in some places, bowing at all the appropriate moments and doing all the wonderful things. And we had the choir filled with well-paid well people down leading us into singing. And I went, how bizarre is this? That here we are, the rich and well-fed, ducking and bobbing and doing all the right things, taking off our hats at the appropriate moment, when actually the song isn't about us. The song is the people outside the cathedral, the people who are homeless and who don't have enough to eat and who don't have enough money to make ends meet each day. This is their song. It's not our song. We're the ones who get sent away empty. But we keep forgetting that and we turn it into a nice song. So we need to think when we're saying Mary's song and when we're thinking about joy, what does all that mean? What is it that we're really talking about? Well, let's have a look at John, see if he can illuminate any of this. And uh, this is an interesting reading. Um, joy would not be a word we would use to describe John at this point in his story. He's not having a great time, is he? He was having a great time when he was out in the wilderness, down at the Jordan. Uh, all the crowds were coming out to hear him. And he was the prophet in the wilderness in that dangerous and thin place that echoes so much of Israel's foundation story. It was quite something to be that prophet. And it was quite something to watch all those people respond as he reminded them that God's faithfulness was the basis of their identity, not their ancestor Abraham, not the temple, 
not the Davidic line of kings, God's faithfulness. And it was quite something to have so many people come and listen and then wish to be baptised, baptised into a new community that sought to live all of this out. Even the one we are told he had been pointing towards Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. Those were heady days. And now, well, he's in prison. And, well, it's probably not going to end well. He knows that. And we know that it doesn't end well. And the traditional way of reading the story is that he now seems quite uncertain. So he sends some disciples to ask if Jesus really is the one. I wonder how we understand that question. Jesus, John, was big on repentance and judgment. And Jesus, well, seemed a lot less focused on those things. And much more on healing people and healing communities. So now that he's away from the crowds and he's on his own in prison, having time to reflect, awaiting possible, probable death, he's had time to reflect on what this is all about. And it seems that he is doubting. Doubting what he was about, doubting who Jesus was. Jesus is not doing what John thought would happen. There's not enough repentance, not enough judgment, not enough fireworks, definitely not enough revolution. So he sends some disciples out for confirmation. Are you the one, or should we wait for another? And it's just about every commentator I read said, this is the Advent question. Are you the one? Or should we wait for another? I wonder if we have ever asked that question of Jesus. And in what way we have asked it. So most commentators do read this question as John doubting. But it's not the only way. And there are some commentators who suggest that actually there are some other ways of understanding this question. For example, rather than doubt, maybe he just wants some quiet confirmation. He's pretty sure he knows who Jesus is, but he can see that he's in trouble. And as he comes to the end of his life, he just wants to double check. Are you the one or should I have been waiting for another? It's not really doubt. It's just, I'm pretty sure you're the one. But if you could just confirm that for me. That would be great. It would give me a sense of closure before my life is closed. So not quite doubt. But there are others who suggest that being away from the crowds and being in prison, with all that that meant, has given him a chance to reflect on all that he had been through and all that he's heard, all that he did, and all that he's heard about Jesus. And... As a result of that, it's given him a chance to reframe how he understands it all. We might say that this has become a moment of repentance, not of turning away from sin, but of 
having a much deeper, much greater, much bigger understanding of God at work in all of this. It is a moment of enlarging his understanding of what the reign of heaven looks like, what it might be. So hearing what Jesus was on about wasn't so much causing him to doubt as it was blowing his mind. He was suddenly grasping that what he thought the kingdom of heaven was about was in fact true, but it was so much more. It's not, I've got this wrong, but, oh, there are so many more layers to this, to this than I had ever possibly considered. And then him asking, have I got that right? Is it all this more that I can now see? Is it all of this? And so he sends his disciples off to ask Jesus, Are you the one with all that I can now see that might be involved in this? Or should I be looking for another? Going back to how I thought it should be. In the end, we don't know how John asked that question. And we don't know how Matthew intended it to be heard. But the question is there. And we can read it in all of those ways, and maybe some other ways as well. And it is given to us to ask this Advent, are you the one, or should we wait for another? In Matthew's story, Jesus responds with, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the wretched of the earth learn that God is on their side. So let's spend a moment reading this from the point of view that John has had his mind blown and is asking for an affirmation of what he now sees that it might be all about. So some of the commentators I read uh, read this as being more than just Jesus curing people of their medical problems. So we read that because we come from a scientific age. Jesus heals people, they're sick, he heals them. That's about it, really. But they point out that actually there's a whole lot of theology involved in this. So when you got sick, this was, and there are many people today who subconsciously still think this, who say things like, oh, what have I done wrong that God would punish me like this when they get sick? They see sickness as... God's punishment for something you have done. So being sick was a theological state, a spiritual state, as well as just, well, they didn't know about germs, they didn't know about bacteria or viruses. There's a whole lot of people around today who don't know about viruses and bacteria, so there we go. And, uh, and so they just saw this as the act of God. So when Jesus cures people, he's doing more than fixing their medical problems. He is actually making a theological statement that they are not being judged by God. That in fact, through Jesus, the God who is faithful is healing them, is restoring them to their communities. And in fact, as Jesus heals individuals, he is also healing families and healing communities. Because many of those people would have been separated, especially those with skin diseases, lepers. They would have been cast out. So 
So to have them come back into the community, restores the community, those who are blind could play no useful part in the life of those families and communities. When they're healed, they can go back and take their part in the communities, take their part in the families. Same with the deaf, same with the lame. So it's more than just fixing their medical conditions. He is restoring them to their families, restoring them to their communities, and in that act is healing those communities as well. And as one of the commentators was at pains to point out, broken communities cause ill health. We can see that today. Broken communities cause ill health. By healing people, Jesus is also healing the communities that cause the ill health in the first place. And by healing those communities, Jesus is creating communities that live as the people of God, bringing healing and compassion and justice to the world. So he tells John's disciples, go back and tell him what you see and hear. So maybe that is a, a list, that list is an affirmation of all that healing. And I wonder if we were asked to go back and tell what we see and hear, what it is that we would report about the activity of Jesus in the world today. What is it we would say about what we see and hear? And a further way of reading this is that this is also an affirmation that John himself was a little bit blind and has had his sight restored. Because he had a very fixed idea about what the reign of God, the kingdom of heaven, was about. And when he had his mind blown and could see all these other possibilities, he learned to see and to hear for himself. He can now more fully see what God is up to in Jesus and what the messianic age of God is really about. So maybe this is an invitation for us to see and hear our own communities as among those who need healing. And maybe we are among the blind and the deaf and the lame. Maybe it is us who need to be healed this Advent so that we might join John in having our minds blown. So that we can see the signs of the reign of heaven all around us, even as we ask, are you the one, or should we wait for another? So let's go back to joy. As you know, uh, one of my heroes is Francis of Assisi, that's why I'm a Franciscan, and he knew all about joy. He talked about perfect joy all the time. Joy in living the way of the gospel, in the way of poverty, letting go of all that his father had hoped for him, and seeing the crucified and risen Christ in all of creation, and in the poor, the blind, the deaf, the lame, and particularly the lepers. In all this, he knew the gift of joy. Joy is a gift. It comes from God. And it is planted deep down. 
and he lived a life of joy despite all his hardships, living as a beggar, a lot of the time just getting slops. It's thought in the end he died of scurvy because his diet was so bad. The beatings he received, the abuse, particularly on the Crusader lines where people, the Crusaders really didn't understand what he was on about trying to bring peace. Despite all of that, he lived joy and he talked about joy. He preached joy. In the past, I've talked about the book of joy, lasting happiness in a changing world, and interfaith conversation between the Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu, and Douglas Adams. And they quote research by Sonia Le Lubomirsky. She never hears this. <laughs> so I think I really butchered her. But never mind. Uh, and she talks of, uh, she did a whole lot of research about happiness, but these three uh, applied it to how we nurture joy in our lives. And so she talks about happiness coming from the ability to reframe a situation positively, the ability to experience gratitude, and the ability to be kind or generous. And as we look at Francis's life, that's what he did. He reframed things positively. He experienced gratitude in the worst of situations, and he was always kind and generous. And if we look at the lives of many of the great saints, we find the same thing. They live joy because they can do the same thing. What surprises me is how often these three ways of nurturing joy keep coming up within the spiritual traditions of Buddhism, Christianity, and Judaism, the three face of the people involved in that conversation and they talked back to their scriptures about how their scriptures talk about exactly the same thing. When we reframe a situation positively, when we experience gratitude even in difficult situations and when we are kind or generous, we water and nurture the divine gift of joy in our lives. And maybe when that happens like those sneaky plants that are all growing out there that need to be dealt with next um, next Saturday, either in the dry or the rain, uh, that kind of force their way up and then create bigger cracks. There are places in my driveway where the stupid plants are almost turning some of the driveway into dirt. So get out of there. But maybe the divine gift of joy works exactly the same way in us, creating little cracks turning our hardness into soil that more joy can grow in and allowing us to see the world in different ways, allowing us to have our minds blown as maybe John the Baptist's mind was blown, so that we might be part of the glimpses of Christ in mystery that the world longs for today. So during this week, I invite you to take some time at the end of each day to give thanks for the ways that God has brought joy into your lives. And I invite you to give thanks for the ways that you have brought joy into the lives of others. And in particular, I invite you to recall the times that you have refrained, reframed situations positively and experienced gratitude and have been kind or generous. And I also invite you to reflect on what has led you away from joy this week.
So I invite you to spend a moment or two talking to your neighbours about anything in that sermon that stood out, or maybe you just want to say that it was utter nonsense. That's up to you. So just have a, turn around and have a conversation for a couple of minutes.